Vital Transformation recently published research on the Inflation Reduction Act. The study is available for download from our website at vitaltransformation.com. I'm Dwayne Schultes, the CEO of Vital Transformation, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues in our Grumpy Old Men podcast series. They are Dr. Joe Hamming, VT's U.S. Business Director and a card-carrying neuroscientist. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great, Dwayne. Thank you. Great to see our good friend, Harry Bowen. Dr. Harry Bowen, VT's consulting economist, a professional purveyor of common sense and often extremely grumpy indeed. How are you doing, Harry? (laughs) Thanks, Harry. So on that note, we see reductions of over $80 billion a year within the confines of the Inflation Reduction Act. Politicians are generally saying, hey, this is great. This is fantastic. Is that right, Harry? Well, uh, you know, again, we, we have to think about what are the incentives for politicians, who are their constituency, and what are they, uh, you know, attempting to bring to that constituency versus the broader context of, let's say, the United States as a whole. So, you know, as an economist, of course, and, and given the studies that uh, you have done and I've participated in, and many others, and pretty much common sense in economics uh, would suggest that, you know, this is going to be a loss for the United States because resources are not being guided by the market, okay? The other difficulty with this is that politicians are only around for some relatively short period of time. So someone say not short enough, Harry. Uh, <laughs> In some yeah, cases, yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, uh, it, which also would bring us down the path of term limits and that kind of thing, and what 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 set of incentives that would generate. Uh, but that's getting off topic. Um, so I, I think that you know the politician, of course, um, uh, particularly if it's uh, in a sense in, in very strong party lines, uh, is following the herd, uh, whether they believe it or not. Uh, and they are incentivized to say, look at this wonderful thing I have brought you, lower prices in uh, Medicare, and uh, gee, you can thank me. And then they'll leave, uh, and then five years down the road or less, uh, you know, people will start to go, well, why can't I get my medication? I want this one. It's cheaper, but you don't offer it. Why are you doing that? Yeah. And so the, the backlash will eventually come. Joe, picking up on what Harry just said, uh, we've been having several conversations this week. We were just in Washington releasing uh, our studies and had a bunch of meetings. And in the course of our discussions over dinner, you pointed out when you started at Bristol-Myers Squibb as a bench scientist back in the 80s, how the U.S. was completely in a different situation from global competitiveness in the pharmaceutical sector than it is now. What was your perspective on the global industry when you started, you know, looking at BMS versus some of the other, you know, big European companies at the time? Well, that's uh, that's a really good, you know, really good point. And I remember very well um, knowing that the United States was, at the time in the late 80s, was a bit of an also-ran when it came to the biopharmaceutical industry. And at the time, we didn't even say biopharmaceutical industry, did we? Yeah, we the pharmaceutical sector, ph- yeah. The, the sector. Europe was at, at 60%. The behemoths, you know, the Glaxos and the Smith-Kleins and the, yeah. you know, the Astra. <clears throat> yeah. And, um, you know, those those big uh, European and, and UK, Bayer. 
European and German uh, companies. And, you know, we knew that, uh, you know, it was a, it was a long road <laughs> to get to, the, to that point. I don't think anybody at that time thought that we were going to overtake the 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 Europeans and the and, and the Brits. I don't I don't think that was even you know in in, in the cards yet, or or thought about that much. Uh, certainly not not not, not by uh, young scientists. But what happened, you know, is 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 really very very clear. And the United States at the time was making all the right investments in. In, in focusing venture capital where it was, you know, where it was going to do the most good and in the major medical systems here in the United States and, you know, in the uh, Boston area and California, Southern and Northern California. Raleigh-Durham. You know, Raleigh-Durham was a, Absolutely. You know, obviously a hotbed. So all of the, all of the raw materials were there and, Really, through you know the help of the Europeans um, to destroy the their industry, you know through price controls and and lack of of, of understanding of <clears throat> of the innovation ecosystem. Um, they may, some may argue with that, but it's clearly true. It's clearly what has happened, and 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 it and it means now that the United States is you know the the behemoth, and we hope. In, in the work that we're doing, we hope that it helps us maintain that edge, maintain that that status as, as the world's uh, medicine cabinet. Picking up on that, we're starting to do work on the general pharmaceutical legislation in Europe. The European Commission is proposing a new law that's going to cut two years of data protection from the pharmaceutical sector, and yet they say this is not going to impact innovation. Uh, I think it's fair to say, Dr. Bowen, you and I are somewhat skeptical of this thesis, and we will be testing this mathematically. However, in lieu of that, um, what we've done is we've looked at the last 363 drugs that FDA has approved type 1 original therapeutics, and we thought we'd stick to a cohort that was just originated in Europe. So we wanted to look at drugs that, and when we say Europe, we're not talking the UK now because the UK is out of the EU officially. We are not looking at Switzerland. So we're looking at Germany, France, Belgium, Netherlands, you know, Italy, Spain, the typical, you know, central European countries of which there's often been a large industry, France in particular. So of those drugs that originated in Europe and were brought to market by a European company from 363, we found 17, 17. Well, that's not enough. So we said, well, we better just look at origination then. So we did that and we found 53, 53 drugs were originated and brought to market. Now that gap, obviously were brought to market mostly by us companies or companies in the UK and Switzerland. Harry, if we look at this erosion in European competitiveness, and now we're looking at a bill from the federal government that will pull $80 billion a year out of the sector. Are we in America going to be immune from these impacts that we've seen in Europe if we start doing the same thing the Europeans do? Are we just that super fantastic just by virtue of having two oceans on either side and like the Grand Canyon that this won't impact the United States innovation ecosystem? Should, should I put my rose-colored glasses on? Uh, do you uh, own rose-colored uh, glasses? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I think in all this, and it's, it's interesting, the time period, uh, Joe mentioned that in terms of what the United States, the, the, the little amount relative that it did to Europe in the up until the 80s or so. So, you know, what, what's happened in the late se in the 70s and the 80s and on the 90s and continuing 
there's this little thing called globalization. Yeah. So there are a number of barriers to trade, business establishment, and particular uh, things such as in the pharmaceutical industry, which often would be uh, subject to higher levels of protection. And with the Single European Market Act of 1987 and various things and breaking down barriers between countries in Europe and also lower costs and transport and all sorts of things. Uh, and quite frankly, also greater mobility of uh, human capital, you know, scientists, engineers, this kind of thing. Um, companies themselves realize that in order to maximize the gains from things like research and development, that they should be putting resources into those locations where they can best reap the reward from their investments in R&D. And so um, those factors all, I think, have kind of combined. And the United States, given its university system, probably by dole, kicked in sure. and allowed Absolutely. Uh, you know, universities and scientists to retain control of, of these kinds of things. I, I don't think that happens in Europe. Um, and so I think that the whole regulatory environment, reductions in trade barriers, and as I say, the ability of companies to establish themselves in many different locations around the world, maximize the return. This is the idea of think global, act local. Um, that's what we've witnessed. We've witnessed resources shifting out of Europe coming into the United States because it's a much more favorable and lower cost environment with much higher productivity. And, and it, it, it may, and I don't have the data on this, but I would suspect that if you looked at the, with the salary gains and the wage gains of scientists and engineers in Europe, it's going to be a lot less than what it is in the United States. And I think Baidol probably had a big impact, and we, 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 we probably should think about that when we think about some of these changes. What about China? Um, I did a podcast with Amitabh Chandra from Harvard, who we know well. Mm -hmm. You know, he pointed out that last year, for the first time, China was ranked number four in high-impact publications mm -hmm. in health sciences, mm -hmm. overtaking Italy, Germany, countries like that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> exactly. We know, we've already seen in some of our research, an enormous movement of advanced therapies like CAR-Ts to China. We already know that they're doing roughly twice as much as the U.S. is. Mm. Is it inevitable now, like gravity, if we start doing things here, things are going to start, more stuff's going to start moving to China? It appears it is. Well, I think it depends on how much we screw up our ecosystem <laughs> here, quite frankly. Yeah. So I, I remember years ago uh, uh, speaking with the, the owner of SWIFT, right? The yeah. banking transfer system that was... Lenny let Lenny Schrank, based yes. in Belgium. And uh, he always had this one phrase. This is back when we talked a lot about competitiveness. This is in the, uh, in the 80s and early 90s. And he, his basic advice was, don't do anything that screws up the competitiveness of your country. And this is Michael Porter's view yeah, from course. his book of 1990. The five Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, adapted to kind of a world environment. Um, the Competitiveness of Nations was his book. And ba his basic message was for policymakers. And it was, don't screw up the environment and make it less competitive because you're hampering your domestic firms. You are not giving them the opportunity to have to go out there and compete on the world stage. 
So, you know, Europe has already hobbled its uh, pharmaceutical sector. Uh, the United States is sort of on a path here with recent legislation of sort of hobbling its uh, pharmaceutical sector, biopharmaceutical sector. Uh, China's pouring money like crazy into supporting its pharmaceutical sector. So, it, you know, there, there's there's a correlation there. I won't I won't uh, say causation, causation yet, but 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 there's definitely a correlation uh, that uh, kind of makes you go hmm. <laughs> One of the clearest examples is the brain drain that that we used to see out of china into the united states now chinese scientists are coming here to train and then going back to china and they're going right back this was the the land of opportunity for them in the past uh it still is it still can be but in fact uh, it is a very welcoming environment back in china because of the things that Harry said, the investments that they're making, and the more of that intellectual capital that you know, collects in China, the better they're able to, you know, their universities and their medical systems will get better and better. They will accumulate intellectual capital rather than export it. And this goes to the point of Amitab now. They're also right. publishing key, right. real thought-leading exactly. research now. Exactly. But they're, they're absolutely they they're driven to win, yes. You know, and 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 that's the that's the difference, and and they get it, and we have an opportunity to hand it to them. We're we're right now, everything that's happening in 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 Washington, state by state, we're in danger of giving it away. We really we really and truly are, and that that is that is absolutely frightening. We mentioned, you know, Baidol before, and I just before we get too far down the road, I think it's important. Baidol, I don't, I don't know many people who would disagree with this, but it is probably the most important piece of legislation that has ever been come into law in the United States for fostering innovation. The Wall Street Journal puts it at number three of all legislation right. that's ever been passed in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's, innovation, I'm sorry, Harry, but innovation-wise, I mean, th this is what set, yeah. and, and again, it's not an accident. It was 1980. Yeah. It was 1980 at the beginning when the United States was and also ran in, in this area. So, Baidol has done wonders for lots of industries, but really has done an enormous amount of good for the biopharmaceutical sector. I would refer listeners to previous podcasts where we've discussed Baidol in greater detail, but also the the specific podcast that you recorded, Dwayne, with Joe with Allen, Joe Allen yeah. who's, who's the head of the Baidol Coalition. He speaks in crystal clear terms about the whole the way that Baidol came about and the collaboration between the senators um, to to make this happen. Let me just jump in here quickly and just point out to those folks who aren't familiar with Joe Allen. Joe Allen was the chief of staff of Barch Bai, who was one of the people who pushed the legislation through, and, and probably more than anybody alive was singly responsible for driving the bus and pushing the legislation through the through the Congress. Joe was the guy who did it. He was the guy who did it. He was the guy who did and it. He, and, he, and he speaks of it now, you know, again, with such passion and clarity 
uh, and, humi- and humility. That's the part that uh, is is really remarkable. It's 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 worth going back to listen to that uh, podcast if you have not already. Hundred percent. And also, just to uh, telegraph a little something, we have a new bit of research around IP and by Dole about IP creation and some of the issues of marching rights that we hope, knocking wood here, or at least in case for mica and plastic and molded, we will be releasing that hopefully by the end of the month. And please look out for that. I'm going to go in the weeds a little bit here, pulling my economic card out. If you look at two quote unquote economists that are seen somewhat as contradictory, if you have Karl Marx and Josef Schumpeter, the, the great Austrian theorist about creative destruction and innovation, what a lot of people don't realize about Marx and Schumpeter is that when they actually were looking at the endpoints of capitalism, they arrived at the same point. They both found that capitalism would harm itself and destroy itself for different reasons. What's intriguing, though, is no one really knows about why Schumpeter said that capitalism would be destroyed. When you read his theories, particularly in Schumpeter too, Schumpeter said that the academic class, the intellectual class, would stop creative destruction. They would be so bought into regulating a system and have so much political power and intellectual power by being tied to these large successful institutions created by the free market that they would no longer allow free market capitalism to create creative destruction. Is that where we're at now, Harry? Is that where we're getting? You raise raise interesting perspective there. I don't disagree with what you said. I think what it underscores is sort of you know, in a philosophical sense, what is the role of government? And, um, you know, when they talk about the elite class is going to want to prevent creative destruction, why would they want to do that? Well, because it's going to mean an income transfer that would occur that they don't want to have happen. And they would have less inf- individual right. reference power. Right. So, so you use the power of government to prevent the income transfer that happens under creative destruction, okay? So again, this is kind of a a tension between individual impacts. How is this going to impact me versus how it impacts society at large? And this is what Adam Smith wrote about, right? That, you know, it's, it's not the benevolence of the baker, uh, that gives us our bread. It's their greed. and But through their greed, each person acting in their own greed brings about the greatest good for society. And so this uh, the thesis you're speaking of with regard to Schumpeter is people essentially trying to block the greater good for society because it means less for them. So, so to the extent that government becomes more and more, unfortunately, involved in the process of income transfer and regulating markets to prevent income transfers, that we wind up in kind of moving in that scenario that you described with Schumpeter, where there's a class of people that can would have enough political power that they can prevent those income transfers and therefore bring everything to a grinding halt. So if we look at some of this motivation that we've had to prevent income transfers, as it were, and we start looking at some of the direct provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, there are a couple things that are extremely problematic. And one of which is how the Inflation Reduction Act manages the time that small molecules and large molecules will be able to recoup revenues differently. Joe, what is the difference between large and small molecules? 
I know this, I mean, we talked about this, but we were just at a conference with a bunch of people who were advocates in Washington, you know, people talking about this issue, and someone literally stood up in a room, you know, a couple hundred people and said, and asked for a well, definition. of large and small molecules. What are they? What, why I, is this important? I sympathize with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them is big and one of them is small. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> no, no it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a fundamental, incredibly important question. We assume people know and and they and many don't the traditional small molecules are those molecules that the biopharmaceutical industry develops they are stamped in a pill of whatever size shape and color they sit in your medicine cabinet they can sit in your suitcase for days and weeks and months and in years and they are very inexpensive to produce, relatively speaking. But of course, everything that goes into the development of those is where the costs come in. They're orally available in in general, small molecules you take once or twice a day. It floods throughout your body and affecting the kind of change that that you're looking for, reducing blood pressure, increasing blood pressure, uh, uh, decreasing cholesterol, clearing up the the sniffles and in the in the secretions uh, in your nasal cavities, etc. That's a small molecule. We're all familiar with those. Large molecules are generally considered biologics, things that are made in a very much different manufacturing facility. These are antibodies, these are proteins, peptides. It can be a gene therapy, it can be stem cell, it can be cell replacement therapies. It, it, is, it is just a, a completely different type of therapy, but it is not taken orally. It is injected, it is somehow implanted, uh, most of these are infused over periods of time, whether it's you know every every week or every couple of weeks, six weeks, uh, month, something like that. It's a molecule. It is a therapy that is produced from generally from living cells, and then purified, packaged, and sent you know to hospital systems for delivery. So where did the motivation come? within the context of regulation to start handling these differently? Where does this stem from? Why would we want to say only nine years and then 13 years? The problem with the biologics is the cost of goods is very high. The ability of a company that is producing a a biologic to recoup uh, their development uh, costs over a period of time is higher. Take quite a bit longer often to develop that is to take them from the bench to to a manufactured product that is ready for uh, uh, for distribution and marketing to to consumers. Because of that, the clock is ticking. You know, from the patenting of the uh, the composition of matter and the and the use for a molecule to treat some disorder, the clock is ticking very quickly and the amount of time that the companies have to recoup those in development expenses is reduced. So it's a speed to market, you know, the clinic that creates this disparity between the two. But there's a greater substitution in the small molecules because they're essentially chemicals. They're not complex biologics. That's correct. So Harry, if we look at our cohort, we modeled 
the top 30 selling drugs over the last 10 years. And that became our baseline from our, for our revenue calculations. We had small molecules and large molecules. The biologics, as Joe's mentioning, the large molecules, we saw 23 years of revenue where peak sales maximized before the competitive biologics, before they became biosimilar or quote unquote generic. You know, so that's where the tail dropped off. 15 years for small molecules, 22, 23 years for large molecules. We've put into stone now in law that those revenues will be curtailed to only nine years for a small molecule and only 13 for a large molecule, essentially creating a four-year gap between the revenues you can incur between year nine and year 13 between a small and large molecule. What will be the market impact of that? If you're starting a company, what would you do? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I actually, you know, a small amount of thought will, will tell you that what's happened is the relative uh, benefit of producing small molecules is substantially less now than it is relative to biologics. So you're going to say, I'm going to do less small molecules and do more large molecules or biologics. Um, so you're going to have a shift in the focus and emphasis, I would think, of pharmaceutical companies where they're going to do less investment, less willing to invest in small molecules, and uh, therefore more willing to invest in large molecules. So that's a simple substitution effect, as we economists would say, because the relative price has changed. What I'd like to add to that is the reason why biologics are used today is there was first of all a big revolution in companies like amgen and genentech back in the 80s when they decided when they understood that you could produce these proteins uh, as therapeutics and that that just opened up a whole you know an incredible wide world of the literal birth of the biotech sector exactly we develop large molecules like that uh, not because necessarily you want a complex molecule, not because you, you want to do an injection every month or week or whatever. It is because that is what is available today to treat a disorder. I think anyone who you ask, we heard this from the advocates this week, Everyone would like to have a pill that they take once or twice a day to do what a biologic would do. And ultimately, those who are developing medicines would always be trying to substitute an expensive living, a product made in, in living cells that needs to be purified, refrigerated, um, uh, cared for very, very carefully. They would much rather have a, a pill than a therapy like that. But again, we're working, they're always going to be working towards substituting small molecules. The problem is, it, it is the drugs that you take orally get throughout your entire body and they may fix one, they may be, they may be treating one you know, small part of, of your, your heart, um, um, again, your, your sinuses, but it's, it gets everywhere. What that means is the, to prove the safety of something that gets everywhere in your body, uh, when you're trying to focus on, on a single problem, that creates a ton of work in, over many, many years 
that's why the complexity. We would always want to take a pill rather than a uh, than a large molecule, but we just don't have that choice at the present time. But we're essentially disincentivizing that because we're creating, and we see companies trying to substitute right now, right? And move, and that's going to create enormous distortions in the market. Again, we spoke about this several times over the last several weeks, and and certainly this past week in Washington, the problem of of getting molecules biologics into the brain across the blood brain barrier this is a we could do a podcast with with neuroscientists about uh, the blood brain barrier but almost all of the therapies that are being pushed forward for neuropsychiatric disorders and, and neurodegenerative di- disorders and the like uh, focus on small molecules because they are able you can take them orally and they get across the blood brain barrier the drugs that we're familiar with now, the the, the latest Alzheimer's drugs, are, are indeed biologics that need to be infused into the central nervous system. Um, it isn't as convenient as we would like, but again, you know, necessity is the mother of invention yeah, absolutely. here. Sorry, you know, let, let me flip that question on his head and say, why do you think that in the IRA they limited small molecule or the, the negotiation begins sooner for small molecules than for large molecules. What, what was the motivation for that, do you think? I think partially the industry got tripped up on its own rhetoric over some of the stuff that ended up in the Affordable Care Act. And I think that this has been a position, well, these are easy and these are hard. And so these need more time. And I think, you know, 10 years ago when they were negotiating the Affordable Care Act, that was probably true. Now, here's the problem, Harry. The Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to a biotech CEO in San Diego who's doing straight-up medicinal chemistry. Those companies now start to become disincentivized because we're moving away from the ability of them to get a return on capital. This is the problem. So, yes, there's been a large molecule revolution, and Joe has been very eloquently pointing out there's a limit to the feasibility for certain applications, particularly in neurology, to cross the blood-brain barrier. So we're disincentivizing huge change. So I think we're, I think in many ways, and Joe, you were part of these discussions, you know, this is 10, 15 years ago when the ACA started coming up. I think the industry has been trapped by its own rhetoric in some respects. Well, I think that's true. I think that, you know, things evolve uh, when, it, when it comes to lawmaking like this. Uh, I think that this is part of the unintended consequences of, all the, uh, the negotiations that have gone back and forth. And I think that, unfortunately, I think our lawmakers have lost sight of what is actually needed for the industry to be successful. Yeah. As Harry po- pointed out so beautifully earlier, this is what happens when, when you tinker too much with an ecosystem. There are unintended consequences, and I think we're, we're, we're seeing them. And the, on the broader scale... It's only going to lead to less and less investment in areas where we clearly need more investment. Oh, you no know, question. And, in, 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 you know, when you think about Alzheimer's disease, the trillions of dollars that it's, you know, projected to cost over time is going to dwarf any costs that, that go into drug development today. Investing today for uh, staving off uh, dementia in the future would make a, 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 a tremendous amount of sense. But again, these decisions are often driven in, in election cycles. 
they're political, they are they do not take reality into account. Yes, there's realities to, to costs and the amount of, of investment in the medical infrastructure and, and in the in the in the healthcare ecosystem. But drugs in general are always seen as a cost in the healthcare system and not a cost reduction mechanism within the healthcare system. You think about what what vaccines do. You think about what antibiotics do, keeping people from from having you know hospitalizations, um, blood pressure medicines and statins and things that keep people alive for for a decade or more longer simply because it cuts down on heart attacks, strokes, etc. It's there's there's a tremendous benefit to the use of medicines in the healthcare system. I recently had a conversation with a, a well-known academic who pointed out that, well, the problem with the IRA, I think the impact is overstated that you guys are saying, because when I look at the decision that's being made to invest in a therapeutic, you know, if I'm doing an 11% discount rate, if I'm looking at every year, I'm taking the value of that investment down by 11% against the cash flow. By the time I get out to year nine, poof, you know, I've written off 80, 90% of this investment. So that's, it's really not that germane what the IRA is doing. Are we wrong, Harry, in our thinking? Are we, have we just made a big mistake here and we should just shut her down or what? Well, I, 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 uh, I, th- there's a sense in which what, uh, what was said is, has some truth to it in the sense that in a perfect world with perfect sore foresight and you know exactly what's going to be the future revenues and costs, then, yeah, today I'm sitting here planning and I can get out a present value formula and I can plug in all the numbers and everything works out one way or the other. Right. But under the case of the IRA, uh, it is a highly uncertain future with regard to what will be the revenue when negotiation begins to take place. So this is kind of like I was thinking of it, it's kind of like having a tax deferred IRA. Right. Uh, we all have some uncertainty about what the tax rate is going to be when we start to withdraw those funds from our tax deferred accounts. But. You know, we have a reasonable idea of what it's likely to be, right? We're not may not be exact, but we have some reasonable assurance of what we think that tax rate will be 20 years from now, right? Or yeah. maybe we don't think about it. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so the same thing is true in terms of making that type of investment decision, right? And the IRA is a very, very uncertain tax that will occur at a particular time, but you don't know what it is. I mean, probably the best thing you can do is just say, suppose we said no, then we're going to just give up, what is it, 90% or something of our yeah, up revenue? To the tax uh, is 90%, yes. So the government right. can say, oh, that's fine, you can right. do this. We're just going to put this small tax on and take right. 90% right. of your gross so, revenue. So, so, you know, I suppose we could develop a range, right? It, 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 worst case is 90% of the revenue is gone. Okay, and I and I won't do the drug anyway because they won't let me sell it if I don't negotiate it. Now maybe this will become clear once the IRA starts to take effect and there's negotiation. I use that word euphemistically, um, uh, and so maybe that will create you know a, a, a less uncertainty for a decision maker standing before the investment is made. 
But the original comment is based on the idea that I have perfect foresight and I know exactly what things are. I mean, if I don't know, my discount rate has got to be 35%. Precisely. And the problem is each of those individual investments still fail at 90%. Right. Somewhere along right, the line. Right, right. I mean, I mean the, the bottom line is there's less present value. Correct. Right? So, so, so you're losing anyway. And that kind of was like Joe was talking about with the small and large molecule, the same thing too, that we're basically reducing everything. It's just some things we're reducing more. So the small molecule more than the large molecule, but we're reducing everything. And the perniciousness of it is we're only going to go after the ones that are the most successful. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Oh, we got a great truck. Oh, heck. Oh, damn. Wow. I just lost <laughs> I just lost 60% of my revenue. So the pie gets smaller. That's And right. that's what I think what's right. missing in this is right. you still fail 90% of the time. Oh, and we're going to make the pie 40% right. less big. Right. So yes, you can do an individual investment in your NPV and that's good, but the macro... Right. Your pie is, you only got you got forty percent less right, investments right, you can right. make. You, you you don't want to be the leader in that race. You, <laughs> Joe, you, yes. you want to be back in the peloton, as they say. Right? <laughs> Save some energy. Yeah. Uh, well, from the calculations that you guys did on the IRA impact, it's eighty billion or so a year. Yeah, roughly forty percent net net on yeah. on the companies that are touched on it. That's substantial. You know, oh God, as a non-economist, huge. that strikes me as, as a big how, number. How far to the moon and back do we get with <laughs> so, but, but that's And that's per year. Yeah, annual. It, 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 per year. I don't think people understand that. I don't think they understand so often uh, you know, the, the actual cost of drug development. But I think if you put it in personal terms, just think about the average person at home two incomes, a few kids, and you're hit uh, immediately with a 40% you know, reduction in income. You're not going to feel that. Um, you're not going to see less of, <laughs> of, of uh, whatever um, a family needs. It's going to have a massive impact. It just, it just it can't help but have a massive impact. And, and the bigger problem, too, is it's not 40% for everybody. These impacts concentrate in only a quarter of the firms who get touched by that's, the IRA. That's correct. Some are absolutely beyond catastrophic, and some is not so much. And we ended up having lunch with someone that we think, a firm that we think is on the, unfortunately, more of the catastrophic side of the balance sheet. Right. And they basically confirmed a chunk of our right. assumptions. So you know. do, do we really want to to hamstring? Uh, that's, that's not even a hamstring. That's, you know, that's, oh, a, that's a K-pole. That's, I mean. a be, that's, that's beheading. <laughs> yes. You know, do we want to do that to a select number of companies that have the most innovative products that are going after some of the, the most important targets, whether it's cancer, neuroscience, uh, uh, Alzheimer's? They say, well, it's only 10 drugs. It's only 20 drugs. But it's the 10 or 20 drugs that are responsible, as you know, the work right. we've done together right. on HR3, right. 10 to 20 drugs or right. 60, it's 50, a, 60, it's 70. It's a Pareto rule. Yes. It's a Pareto exactly. rule. Exactly. Right? Well, it's 10 or 20 drugs and then 10 or 20 more and then 100 and then 200 when you're talking about over the, the course of decade and, 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 yeah, and right. two. But the other point that, that I make, and I don't think anyone disagrees with this, at least I haven't, no one, as I flight tested this idea, Dwayne, you heard this week in Washington, we have seen an absolute exponential growth in insults to the industry, whether it's intellectual property protections, whether it's price controls by any method, 
uh, direct and indirect. We see that, and and again, it's exponential. This growth, the growth in these insults. What is to say that it, it that exponential hit isn't going to continue and get worse and worse and worse? This is really, really bad policy. This IRA, the uh, Innovation Reduction Act. We've heard uh, <laughs> our good friend Paul Newrider from Amgen first. I, I think. Well, he. We heard it. We're from giving. Him first. We're giving Paul Newrider credit. And, but we hear it more often. I heard it. We heard it on stage. We heard it on stage Wednesday. Yes, this, we did this week. So people are beginning to use that, and it's absolutely true. It is doing exactly the opposite of what is needed at the present time. And, and the, we're not supposing here. This is exactly what's going to happen. But as bad as this is, what is to say that it isn't going to get any worse? And in the case of Europe, as as you you know know so well, Dwayne, because that's where you live, we're seeing them doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down on these bad policies because they have lost so much, and there's not a, a, that that much of an incentive to protect what's left. That's the problem, well, and that's was, what we're going to see here. Is is my fear? Well, there was that wonderful headline that I forwarded to you guys: "How to cut prices and improve access." Oh, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, that that'll work great. Yeah, that's fantastic. well done, everyone. Bravo, bravo, well done. Give yourself a gold star and a cookie on that one. There's this fifty pound. No, excuse me. There's a five thousand ton gorilla there called the pharmaceutical benefit manager, which acts as a broker between the consumer, the endpoint consumer, and the manufacturer. The reality is here, Harry. 50, 60% of this is going to the broker. Now, there's a little thing in the Fifth Amendment called the takings clause. If a government entity is coming in and taking something, you have to be justly compensated for that. You can't just confiscate somebody else's property. Now, regardless of what we think about the industry, these are intellectual property. These are patents. These are discoveries that have been made by scientists and companies and individuals and individual investors own a percentage of those companies, often through equity or the stock market. I mean, we're talking about private property here. Now, we have had a trend in this country where we've not really cared about the Constitution so much. It's been an impediment to good lawmaking, quote unquote. But of recent, we just saw a First Amendment case where, no, you can't censor speech. And if we're talking about a 90% tax on the IRA, when you're only controlling 60% of your revenue, and if you look at the lawsuits that have been filed against the IRA, they do specifically mention the takings clause. Is there something to this now? Are we really getting into territory here where we're just getting confiscatory in violation of, of constitutional law? Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's and yeah, also I, I, before you jump into that, Mary, it seems very un-American. So, it seems very un-American. It seems very specific to one industry. Oh, there's no question. It's the biopharmaceutical industry that is taking this, these draconian hits again, not just through price controls, but it also intellectual property. Yeah. That's the part. And, and, you know, I'm not a patent attorney. I know many. But I look at this and I think to myself, we're going to go down that road as United States of America where we're going to pick on one industry out of many? That's to me, is stunning. 
Well, and the fact that if you don't play ball under this law, we're, well, the, the fair thing to do from a governmental we're perspective, shut you down. we'll take 90% of your revenue. Yeah, we'll just shut you down. Well, which will effectively <clears throat> shut It would effectively <laughs> shut them down. You know, right. if you're taking you have a profitable drug that's responsible for 40% of your gross revenue, we're yeah. going to start taking 90% no, I, of that. I, I would think, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that they have a very strong uh, grounds in terms of these lawsuits that have been filed more recently and partly under these taking clauses. I think that's an, an excellent approach to take. And it is scary. It's interesting because, you know, that we just talked about Bayh-Dole and all that. And what, you know, by what Bayh-Dole did was to just reaffirm the idea of the power of private property rights, the enforcement of private property, right? So allowing people to retain ownership of things created in universities, et cetera, et cetera. And yet with the IRA, we're going in exactly the opposite direction, we're taking away the whole idea of private property. And and this is something that also, just as a general thing, sort of as I got into this with you and working on these problems, was it's also a kind of a surprise factor. You know, like, well, we're going to grant you patent protection, and the patent protection we know is a good thing because we know that will stimulate research and development and encourage you to develop drugs. But, oh, as soon as it's developed, now we're going to take away all the money. Oh, yeah, we didn't really mean it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, and 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 so that only has to ha- has to happen once or twice, and and it has the effect of you know depressing chilling. Uh, investment. It's chilling. Yeah, chilling. Now, what's interesting though? Okay, some would say the fact that the biologics are getting twenty three years of revenue that's wrong. Okay, and I I can look at that and say I get that fine. But then there's law called Hatch Waxman that allowed for the that allowed for the monopoly position of pharmaceutical companies and biopharmaceutical manufacturers, you get 20 years of patent life, and then it, you, know, you start fighting it out in the courts. Okay, fine. If you've got a problem with that law, Hatch-Waxman, maybe we should go back and deal with Hatch-Waxman if you're not happy with that. It seems to me what we've done is we've bolted on, like a Mickey Mouse ear on a balloon, a Hatch-Waxman resolution to an Inflation Reduction Act revenue model in the Medicare system, which just seems to me completely bass-ackwards. It makes no sense. It's an excellent point, but this is also, you know, par for the course for government, right? So nobody goes in to fix the actual problem. They look at all of the outcomes that have been created, and they try to compress it all down into some sort of solution. I mean, we have many examples in different areas, not just pharmaceuticals, of how the government tries to deal with symptoms rather than causes. Sure. And I, I think your point is very well taken, right? That if if it turns out that, um, you know, that the system is such that, okay, some people have figured out how to game it by extending patents or reformulations or whatever, Joe can speak to this much better than I. If that's some, you know, this is like in, in IT where people started, uh, you know, patenting the look and feel of computer screens. Uh, and, and, you know, it, at some point it, it starts to look absurd. And if that's what's happened, if, if there are cases where people have, you know, kind of been clever but abused the system, then I would agree with you. You need to go back at the original legislation and revise it so that you say, no, we don't want to allow that kind of thing, so we'll put something in there. Well, and then you're dealing with the real issue. You're not coming up with smoke and mirrors that are, right. you know, a bumper sticker slogan, right. you know? Right, Joe, picking up on that, 
I have no problem with label extensions. There are often very good reasons for label extensions, but do you agree that I mean, Hatch-Waxman's almost the same age, almost identical date, yeah. the same age as, yes. as Bidol? Would that solve the problem? Could it solve the problem? And two, does it have political capital? Is it ever going to happen? <laughs> There's a double-edged sword there. Sure, of course. When you go back, given the passage of 40-plus years, yeah. you have now new players who are going to go back and tinker with something that's worked so incredibly well. That scares me. What is it going to look like after after that? I I don't know if that's a good if that's a good idea. I don't know if that's a good prescription. Probably a, a great deal more harm could be done. So tweaking at the edges, figuring out fixes. Um, it's it's like a it's like a computer patch uh, or a programming patch or whatever yeah. that may be the least worse solution to some of these things. In effect, this interagency group led by Commerce and HHS that's looking at the at the uh, Bidol provision called Marchin, um, they're making some recommendations about how that pro- the provision of that law are going to be, what they're going to do to revise that to be used for or not be used for a price controlling providing access for patients. That is a perfect example of tweaking a provision within existing law. What's going to happen there? We all hope, yeah. those of us who care about the industry and follow the industry and believe in it and rely on it as we age, <laughs> are hoping that that cooler heads prevail, that the NIH continues to, to look at March in appropriately and does not think about overturning or changing a provision that is going to that is going to allow for essentially price control on a few products a few critical products that uh, consumers uh, require need we're getting to the point we're going to we're going to find out very soon what what's going on with that uh, with that interagency group one of the key findings we had in our research which came as quite a shock i remember we were in the room projecting the revenues, and we suddenly realized, hey, wait a minute, we've got a problem here. Orphan therapies, particularly in cancer, which have been very successful, that's been seen as a real bellwether of the U.S. system, is our ability to create and start innovating very good therapeutics in the oncology space. The IRA, because of the nature of it, we've really radically disincentivized the ability to bring orphan cancer products to market because essentially the minute you bring something to market, that clock starts ticking and you're trading because that's a hard stop in time. You're essentially now trading very small early stage orphan revenue, which you need to move up into larger indications, but you're trading that for peak sales and then you lose the peak sales and the math works out where, Hey, this doesn't work. And we are now seeing a lot of companies liquidating that. How could that be fixed? What needs to happen? First, I have to recognize that this disincentive is suddenly created, right? As you said, to postpone the introduction of of, uh, of smaller, uh, is, I don't know if the indication is the right word, but uh, to a smaller number of indications and you build on and you build on and you build on because, as you said, the clock starts 
with the first one. Those are usually smaller revenue, uh, as you mentioned. And then eventually you hope after some amount of time, some years. And, and that, some that, greater that, evidence, too. Right, right. And, and that's, that is what happens. That's how the sort of pipeline gets developed in a way or the enhancement of the drugs. get. This is a major, as you said, disincentive. Uh, I don't know exactly, you know, how people will, uh, how that will shake out, but the disincentive is clear. Right. I, I have no incentive to go look for additional indications if I'm doing an orphan. And in our other research, we also found that that's, in fact, something that makes the orphans profitable in the sense that having the expectation of additional indications means that I start out with this one indication, this orphan thing at the start, but I, I know that by getting more indications if I can, then, then that drug can become profitable. But if you limit me to only one indication or you incentivize me to limit myself to only one indication, because otherwise you're going to take 90% of my revenue, um, <laughs> uh, you know, then okay. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to go look for these additional indications. This this is a, a, a really uh, interesting outcome that happened, as you say, in terms of looking at what's. And yeah, we going didn't on. expect that actually. We did we, not expect. We it. didn't. We didn't. We got all excited. We created all kinds of mathematical models to try to look at this. And, <laughs> well, that's, and, that's the, uh, that's the beauty of doing there. research. Yeah. You know, you you find out things that you didn't know you were going to find out. But but I think you know, Harry, just just one really critical point there. Uh, a lot of these orphan drugs are not profitable. Yeah, right. and, exactly. And, and they That's, never, they and, can hardly ever be profitable. And this is something else we found out. In and the research. science moves faster and faster. Products become more niche and more, you know, uh, specific because of our understanding of the genetics of disease. They're only going to get more and more narrow. And more narrow equals very straightforwardly less patients. And, and that's what's driving costs so much, which is, you know, again, it just, it's working in the opposite direction. So we have an election coming up in 2024. Joe, what happens? <laughs> well, now we're talking about who's going to keep the House, who's going to take the Senate. Um, the former President Trump looks to be a prohibitive favorite on the GOP side. Uh, who just came out in favor of bringing who, back most favored nations? Who is so he, he is so adverse to the to the pharmaceutical industry. He is so far left of many on the left to take on the farm, biopharmaceutical industry uh, over prices. He he wants to level the playing field across you know all markets. Um, I think that's a, a pipe dream. It's going to be very tough, but but boy, it's going to be an interesting you know sixteen months leading into uh, uh, November of twenty four. That's for sure. Harry, what happens? Where do we end up? <clears throat> well, I I have my bomb shelter all restocked because <laughs> uh, I I you know that who knows where we're going to go uh, in the next uh, sixteen eighteen months. Our research on the Inflation Reduction Act is available on vitaltransformation.com. Joe, thank you very much for your time today, thank, sir. Thank you, Dwayne. This is a pleasure speaking with both you and Harry. Harry Bowen, feeling grumpy? Uh, no, actually, I feel great now. Oh, jeez. So, so uh, I guess we'll have to figure something out. <laughs> we failed at our mission. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank bye. you, everybody. Thank, thank you. Bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.